Welcome to episode 3140 of the Survival Podcast today, guys. Uh, we're going to talk about quail. And I want to just start out with, for today's podcast, um, why we're going to talk about quail. What, what, what made us come back to this topic? Again, this is episode 3140. And I've done a lot of episodes on quail, but not for quite a while. I even did a Q&A that uh, was when we did a whole series on quail, then the Q&A came in. I did a single episode on quail for just Q&A, and it was over three and a half hours. And so I'll have a link to that, some of the prior episodes in the show notes today. It'll be up about an hour after uh, the live version of this video ends. Before that, though, if you're listening to this, it probably doesn't matter. But if you're watching this, it's really important. You'll leave a little banner down there on the screen. It says, I will never contact you for any personal information or private chat, et cetera, in the video comments. Just because you see my logo does not mean it's me. And just today, uh, I deleted about, I bet, 50 uh, comments where somebody was using my logo saying, hey, it's me, Jack. Let's talk with WhatsApp numbers and shit like that. And it, I just don't do it. it I never do it. I never will do it. It's a bad way to have back-channel communications with your people. I have the most public email address on planet Earth, jack at the survivalpodcast.com. I say it multiple times every episode to the point where when people say, how do I email you in some sort of contact, I say, you're not qualified to email me. You're not. If you can't figure it out at this point, you're not qualified to email me. Go figure it out. Uh, but please be careful with that. Some scams have happened. I even took some screenshots today. I'll show them later sometime this week so you guys know what I'm talking about if you've not seen it before. And by God, please report them. And, yes, there are scammers doing the same thing on Instagram. Hi, this is Jack. It's my backup account, whatever. They've been There's like three of them in particular, and they've been reported dozens of times, probably hundreds of times each, and Instagram doesn't care about you because they're Facebook, and Facebook doesn't care about you. Just something to think about when you choose where to watch your streams at. Like, YouTube sucks, but Facebook, man, you guys really don't care about people. You just don't care at all. Anyway, um, the way we got to this topic is Dr. Ken Berry had me on last week on his uh, YouTube channel, his farm YouTube channel, and we were talking about ways to produce food and we started off like for apartment dwellers and we went up like through suburban urban types with small postage stamp yards up to having a couple three acres and in that discussion we talked about quail quite a bit and I realized like we haven't talked about this subject much at all and Friday I did a show on downward class migration and I did a poll and said do you want to hear downward class migration or how to get started with quail Quail lost by, uh, it was pretty much a two-thirds, one-third vote spread. But one of the commenters said, or you could talk about how quail will help you deal with downward class migration. And right on the nose there. And that was always the plan. Whichever one won, we'd do first, and then we would do the other one on, on the Monday. So that's how that's going to go. And we'll be talking about how this makes economic sense, not just sense for your health and sense for your personal productivity and resiliency, but it makes economic sense as well. And we'll talk about that today as well. This is not, I have people like, I want to know how to feed my quail and never buy feeder. I'm not going to, that's like a whole subject to itself on feeding poultry. 
Um, we will talk a little bit about augmentation of protein, and we'll, we're going to bust some myths today, too. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is KnifeKits.com. I got to tell you what, guys. I have uh, been working with KnifeKits.com for, it seems like forever, but I've, I've had them as a sponsor as long, I think, as anybody that's still here and we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 12, maybe 13 years that this small business has sponsored my show. Um, people that get in now as sponsors pay considerably more than they do. I've never raised their race because they've been that loyal. They're an incredible company. They have an incredible array of stuff, and it's not just knives. You can see all the cool stuff they make. But I just want you to think that if you get on board with learning how to make kit knives, that can turn into something more. You can go much further with it. Or you 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 might just, you know, make a few and, and learn some skills from it and then build some family heirlooms. It's just really a great way to kind of get your feet wet. They have all kinds of great stuff, including uh, DVDs and things like that to help you learn if you've never done anything like this before. Next up today, BulkAmmo.com. Now they haven't been a sponsor as long, but in the in, in the in the the realm of podcasting, Bulk Ammo has been a sponsor for ever and a day. I'd say we're at like eight or nine years. I don't think many podcasts have sponsorships that run you know a decade or more. I don't think most podcasts run a decade or more, but they have all the common calibers that you want. You can see, you can just scroll through their site, pick and choose what you want. Lightning fast shipping. Um, recently, they just renewed as a sponsor, and I mentioned it, and wow. Um, it just came in left and right from you guys uh, with compliments for them, and I, I sent it over to them. Tons of you guys sent me emails saying, like, I had an error with my order. They fixed it immediately. They, they do ship fast. It, it saves, you know, the, the, the discount on the MSB saves me money, enough money to pay for the membership itself, like tons of stuff like that. I sent it over to my contact at Bulk Ammo, and he was kind of blown away with how, how much you guys really do love doing business with BulkAmmo.com. So always remember when you're going to buy something, take a look at our sponsors and take a look at our MSB if you're a member, and you should be. And think about doing, think about doing business with them because they support you guys. You know, they support you by supporting this show, and they're incredibly loyal. Um, I defy any podcast on the planet to uh, to compete with TSP, not on number of listeners, not on popularity or, you know, Spotify ratings or something like that, because Rogan will beat my brains in on that, but on, on longevity and loyalty of sponsorship. It, it's pretty impressive. So just remember that when you're making decisions about where to do business. All right. With that, let's go ahead and jump on into this. And uh, remember, if you have questions or items for comment, make sure that you use all caps uh, just maybe the first couple words in the comment or the question, and I will star them for follow-up so we can catch up with you uh, at the end because it's much easier for me to plow through because you might ask something that I'm going to answer anyway. All right, so let's start off with why quail in the first place. Why would we choose quail for meat and eggs, especially if chickens were an option? I I'm not going to say anything here that's anti-chicken. This message is not anti-chicken. I own chickens. I like chickens. Chickens are cool birds, and they are the right bird for a lot of people. But there's also a, a fundamental reality. If we want a dual-purpose bird, if we want something that's eggs and meat, 
it's hard for chickens to compete with what I'm going to tell you about quail. Um, we do have the American Breast Chicken uh, group, and we are researching that, and we're going to start working together on that, exchanging genetics and things like that. If you want to know more about that, you can email me, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC Breast Chicken. In the subject line, I will send you a link to the Telegram group. Uh, I don't make that public. It has to be back channel only. Again, the back channel with me is email. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot of potential there. But if you live in a suburban, urban, really small lot, it's very hard to compete with what I'm about to give you about quail. This is, this is fundamental reality. Number one, they are incredibly fast growing. We're talking, you get an egg in 18 days in an incubator, it hatches into a little puff ball about the size of a golf ball. In six weeks, that little bird is at the perfect size for harvest. They can get a little bit bigger, but they're at the perfect, like their, their, their bone to protein ratio, their tenderness. Uh, they are just fantastic for that. At seven weeks, they start laying, which means you can have a group of birds that are about to go into a molt, and that will be about 18 months after they're born. So you you know very much with a calendar, like this is when I'm going to have to replace my birds. And all you have to do is count back from that day seven weeks, and then count back from that day 18 days. And then that's the day that your replacement eggs need to go in an incubator. And then you save your eggs to go in your incubator on that day, and there's your next generation. And by the time that group stops laying, you have another group laying already. Contrast this with chickens. Depending on breed, there will be anywhere between 20 and 26 weeks, with an average of 24 weeks or roughly six months from chick to egg producer. And when you think about it that way, it's it's actually incredibly powerful. And I don't say that they're right for everybody or they're the best for everybody. Um, what I'm saying is that what I try to recommend is that you at least be aware of the thing that's probably the best thing for the most people. And so if you tell me I want to have an ongoing supply of eggs and an ongoing supply of meat and I want to be self-sufficient in that I don't have to keep going back to a hatchery to get new birds. I don't think anything beats quail for that particular desire. And if you don't have that desire, that's totally different. If you're fine, I'm going to raise 50 meat chickens a year and I'm just going to buy Cornus Cross and I'm, you're happy with that. They're going to outproduce the meat. They're going to be not that much longer. You're looking at like 10 weeks in reality for most backyard producers but then you have to process 50 chickens. And 50 chickens is a lot of work to process, or you're paying. In my case, I'm going to pay somebody. I've got a, a, a person uh, or a company down the road, and they do birds for $4 a bird. I, I can't afford to process chickens for $4 a bird. My time is worth more than that. So that's just something you know to think about. Now, when it comes to a quail, I have a video on doves that doves are already dead, but basically you process them the same way, except you also pull out the leg cords. I'll put it in the show notes for you if I remember to do it. But I'm going to give you kind of the basics. How do you process a quail from I have a living bird in my hand to I have meat 
that is ready to be put aside, stored, left to rest, and then cooked tonight, whatever. This will be graphic for some people, but they're such small birds, there is no need to be doing the upside-down, hang-bleed-out type thing. You literally hold the bird in one hand, you grab the head between your, your ring finger and your index finger. Any dove hunter knows this gets done in the field all the time with doves that are crippled, and pop the head off. And it literally comes off like that. That bird is dead. It's done. It's over. There is no, there's nothing, like you have severed brain from the rest of the body, and it's it's as quick and peaceful as it can be. And I, I, I think is you know, it doesn't look good if you're the one to get it done to you, but it's probably better than having your neck cut and, and bled out like we have to do with chickens. We then take the bird, we pull a full few feathers off the breast, we reach in, we grab the back of the bird and the tip of the breast, and we pull, pop. When you do that, right in front of you will be the heart. You take the heart out. I'm going to show you what to do with those hearts a little bit. And then you grab the skin, you pull the skin off the breast, you reach in and you grab the breast and you go pop and you have a skinless, boneless breast in your hand. Yes, skin's delicious, and if you want to pluck them, you go ahead. I'm giving you the quickest way to process them. We have a bucket of water sitting there. We, we knock the feathers and stuff off of the breast and a little bit of blood. We set that aside. I usually use a colander. That way they can keep draining while that's going on. You reach down in, and you pop open where the thigh meets the body. Pop that and pull. Pull the skin back down to the foot. Snap. Now you've got a leg cord. That gets rinsed and put in the colander, and then you do the same thing on the other side, boom, done. And then if you want to, and I usually do, I find it to be worth it, you can go into the guts and you pull out the liver. The only thing about the liver is there's a little tiny gallbladder on the quail liver, and you want to separate that. And if that, if that gallbladder breaks, just throw that one, just throw that one away. The dogs aren't even going to eat it. The gallbladder file is bad. So then you've got a heart, you've got a liver, you've got two leg quarters, and you've got a breast. It takes longer for me to say it than for you to do it once you learn how to do it. I would say on average, without trying to go fast, 45 seconds, I can do a quail. 30 seconds if I'm trying to do it quickly. No tools, no nothing. Now I'm going to say something else about that. That's a six-week-old bird that you are processing as a prime meat bird. They're very tender at that age. When you have 18-month-old coal birds... You probably want to use shears. And there's ways to do with shears where you end up with, like, basically you cut the backbone out of the bird and you end up with the, the, the legs and the breast together. And you could do that if you want to. But I'm going to tell you my experience has been you will get better results cooking breast and leg quarters separately because a breast is this big lumpy thing and a leg quarter is this flat little piece of dark meat. And I'll show you some stuff from cooking in, in a little bit here. Um, but it's very hard. If you actually mean it when you say, I want to produce meat for my family to eat, to argue with this reality, about two to three birds will feed a person. I, I go to a place called Glorious Latin Cuisine. I often get the quail there because they cook skin on and under a salamander in a way that I just can't compete with. I mean, I wish I could afford like a $15,000 salamander broiler. I can't. And uh, I could, but it does, it's not responsible. And, and, and then I would probably pay somebody to I'd pr probably teach a kid locally to pluck my birds from me just to have the crispy skin on them. Um, but they serve two quail with some grilled vegetables and stuff. And that's, that's plenty. That's, that's plenty for a grown man to eat. If you're really a big meat eater and you don't do any sides at all, maybe three. 
So just like an average family, let's say four kind of older children so that they eat a full meal. You need eight birds. You got eight minutes and dinner's ready. Dinner's ready to be cooked. Again, I compare that to processing a chicken. And this, right now, uh, Grazing Farms is talking about the scissor off with the head, cut out the backbone. It is, it is a good way to go. I just, when I tried it, so the way I even came up with the way I do it all by hand, we processed 150 birds here uh, at a workshop. And I, I had a guy named Brad Davies here who I worked with in the past, and he used the shear method, and he taught exactly right here what to do. And we're doing it. And I said, hey, does anybody want to see how I do doves in the field? And there was quite a few people that did. So I just took one bird and I did it. And I'm like, well, then, you know, the breast out is easy. But what about the leg quarters? And when I did it and I went, I realized like the actual amount of meat that I have in my hand is really the same amount of productive meat. And I now I've got a separation of breast and leg quarters. I can put them in the freezer separately. I, I just started doing it that way. Now, I would say if meat's at more of a premium, the beauty of doing it the way the grazing farmstead is saying is all those backbones, you throw those all in a bag and you make stock out of them. And it's less wasteful. But in the end, there is a, there is something to be said for efficiency. So that's the most efficient method. And I've also done um, pull all the feathers off the breast, take a knife and take the breast cutlets and have skin on breast and then pop the legs out. And I do that for ducks and chickens all the time now. I, I have not found it to really be worth my while to do for quail. All right, next up, I want to talk about, again, their, their food value. What is the actual food value of these guys? And I think there's a lot of misconceptions of, you know, like how big a quail egg is, and people don't think it's really maybe worth it to, uh, to, to use quail eggs because they're so tiny or what have you. But there, it's really the case that about three to four quail's eggs, depending on the size of the, the eggs your birds are producing. And some birds produce really big eggs. The, the eggs that my birds were uh, produced when I had them, they were about average. Those what you see in my hand right there. So three of those are about the size of an average, not a super jumbo, but an average chicken egg. And kind of reinforcing that point, it's really more important when you cook them so if you look there, you can see I'm doing some toast and, and that one has like five eggs in it, but it's a, it's a, that's, that's a, that's like two chicken eggs worth of egg on top of there. And that was just cooked in the, uh, the large, uh, ball jar ring. So I take a large ball jar ring, spray it with a little bit of, uh, oil, set it down and crack the eggs into a bowl. So they all go in at the same time because they cook really fast and then dump them into the ring. And, uh, once they're solid, just pull the ring off. And so, you know, you've got about five eggs there equaling like having two chicken's eggs. So they're, they're not tiny by any stretch of the, the imagination at all. And you get so many of them that they make up for not being as big as a chicken's egg, in, in my opinion anyway. Uh, they do not have a lot of fat. So if you're concerned about your fat intake, it, it, you know, they are quite lean. They don't have a ton of fat on. However, uh, organ meats have a lot of fat and the livers are like 50% fat. 
So if you save the livers and use the livers, I think you'll find that you enjoy them. Uh, you, you, I think you'll find that you enjoy them, even if you're not a liver person. So I've mentioned that I will take the extra step of harvesting the livers when I, when I process quail. And it's because it's a very mild liver. And what I find is just some butter and garlic and cooking them. Some people are a little iffy on eating liver that's not like annihilated with cooking. And it's probably why they hate liver. So you want to cook them like medium rare to, 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 to medium. And if you do that, I think you'll find that they're really delicious. You can also incorporate liver with other things. So you, know, you can take all your quail livers, throw them in the freezer till they're almost frozen from, you know, several hatches even, or you can even freeze them and then they'll mostly defrost. Put them through a grinder and mix them in with ground beef, and that will up, that will give you like that nutrition addition. I'm sure you could use kidneys and stuff like that. I just, they're really tiny, and I've, I've never personally taken the time to, uh, to harvest those. But definitely the liver, um, is worth harvesting. And, and it's deer, like, I, I, I'm so glad no, it's not deer. Rabbit liver and quail liver are like the only two livers that I actually enjoy, right? They, they, it, and you do what, what that is, uh, has what you please, right? Um, but I really don't like deer liver. I don't like calf liver. I don't like beef liver. I don't like pork liver. I'll use it in sausages and other things like that. And then it's, it's a great additive. And I'll generally use it at about 10% of total weight. And that's about it for me before I start to really taste liver instead of just taste like this enhanced flavor. But quail liver and rabbit liver, I don't know why other than they are very, very mild. So you do have that. Otherwise, just cook them in lard or baking grease or wrap them in bacon or, or you know, whatever. Like, you, you have a protein production system. And then remember, the egg yolks are just as fatty as, as chicken eggs. So there's a lot of things we can do with quail eggs that I think people don't think of. One would be we can make our own mayonnaise. And you can make mayonnaise. This is something I think people don't realize because everybody's so addicted to the lily white everything. Somebody said something here. Uh, Don Ricardo said, ew, quail eggs, they're not white. That's what his sister says. So like everybody wants everything white in America. So, uh, we make, you know, mayonnaise out of egg whites. The French think we're stupid. The French make mayonnaise out of egg yolks. So you can make mayo out of eggs, whole eggs. You can make it out of egg whites or you can make it out of egg yolks. So you could make some really amazing quail egg and avocado oil mayo and that would be a great fat addition to anything like oh i don't know cold quail in a salad would be an example of, of how you could use that so you have a fat production and a protein production system in here and remember that any animal's fat count is going to be a direct reflection of how it eats so we're going to talk about feeding your quail in a bit but if you are including high fat things in their diet like black soldier fly larva like uh, sunflower microgreens that you grow for them. You're going to put more fat on them, and they are going to have naturally more fat in their system if you do that. Um, however, I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't, if you have quail and you're harvesting them for eggs, and I would think just about anybody that, that had quail would be having them for eggs, not just for meat, you want to get one of these things I have on the screen right now, quail egg shell cutter. These, this is like $5 and something cents for two of them. So like $2.50 a piece. 
I feel so strongly about these things, guys, that back when we were doing them and we were selling quail eggs, because that's another thing you have when you have quail eggs, um, you have a, a marketable product. They're incredibly profitable because they're cheap to feed. A lot of people were asking me before I did this, they want to know how to feed them, feed them, but never run out of feed. And look, unless you're doing thousands of quail a year, four or six bags of good high protein game bird feed is going to last you a long, long time with a stack of quail cages or some quails in a quail tracker, a long time. So you, you don't really need to worry that you're going to run out of feed. Just stock feed for the quail, just like you stock feed for yourself or for your other animals. But if you're selling them, what we would do, when you bought quail eggs from us the first time, we would ask our customers, so they weren't just giving away stuff to give away, do you have a quail egg cutter? And a few of them were like, yeah. Like they were people that used quail eggs before, and they had lost their supply, and they were trying to find a new supply. Most of them were like, what's a quail egg cutter? Here. And we would give them one. We buy them in bulk. So I have a link where you can get a 12 pack of them and you can get them for under two bucks a piece. And if you're going to sell them, give your customers quail egg cutters, show them how they work and they will come back and buy more quail eggs. If you don't, they're going to go home and try to crack a quail egg, like a little chicken egg, like you see them do on cooking shows, which I think is stupid. And I think it's on purpose in those cooking shows when the guy's like trying to figure out how to crack a quail egg. Anybody with a half a brain that's, that's a professional cook should know to use these things. And there is a right way and a wrong way to use them, and it has to do with the egg itself. So if you look at any egg, any bird's egg anyway that I'm aware of, you're going to have a fat side and a skinny side. You want to hold with the fat side down and the skinny side up and cut the skinny side off. Because that way there's more room for the yolk to settle in the bottom, and you'll never nick a yolk if you do that. Otherwise, you may, in fact, nick a yolk. But if you use these things, your life will be better for it if you're going to be using quail eggs. Uh, so make sure you definitely include that in what you get. And I wanted to talk just a little bit, throw some food in front of you here. Uh, a lot of you guys only listen to the audio, but this might be, uh, this might be worth pulling up just to see. Uh, I mentioned the hearts and the livers. Well, this is what we do. One of the things that we do with the hearts and it's a smaller picture. So you'll have to forgive me there. Um, yeah, I can't blow that picture up, but what we'll do is this is when we like do a few quail. And then we're going to eat them right away. So this is like, I think I cooked six quail for me and a friend. So we did two of these. And we just have a heart, a jalapeno, a little square of jalapeno, then a heart, then another square of jalapeno, then a heart, then another square of jalapeno, then a heart, then a, a square of jalapeno. And they're the, they're the big, long, heavy duty bamboo, uh, toothpicks. By the way, that's what you should have. Toothpicks are shit. They're garbage. But if you, I should probably put that on T-spads, right? The bamboo toothpicks, they're, they're about, you know, three inches long, and they if you use one to actually pick your teeth, I just so happen to have one sitting right here. Right here. Let me get that up for you. Uh, they actually don't fall apart. They don't go to crap on you, um, and they, they last. And then you can use them for cool little things like making your martinis actually be cool with your, uh, your olives or uh, – putting the quail heart skewers like that. You we throw those on the grill kind of indirect heat. Think big thing with hearts, a lot like I was talking about liver. Don't like freak out because it's a heart. It's just a muscle. And uh, that way you won't uh, overcook it. And uh, so that's that. Then 
a lot of times you'll end up with leftovers. And anytime I have leftovers, I am big on soups. So this is a quail soup. It was done with some leftovers and some bones and things like that. And I, I call this like a garden soup. And this, I can just look at this and tell you this was either made in, in mid-fall or mid-spring because of the greens that are in there, right? Like that's all stuff out of the garden when those greens are doing well in my climate. Uh, and then we have, uh, this is probably one of the best things I've ever made in my life. Unfortunately, we were drinking when we made it. We don't remember exactly how to make them, but I know it involved gochujang, which is Korean fermented chili paste, and uh, some other uh, seasoning, and we basically basted them with the gochujang stuff. Then we hit them with a dry rub, and then we hit them again with the baste at the end. And uh, this is actually why my friend David and I started a cooking show for a while. You guys might remember it, known as Bill Tom for Breakfast. And we're like, we need to make sure that we don't forget how to do this stuff again in the future. And, and then we just stopped it. Wait, I didn't show you guys that. That's That was crappy of me. I'm talking about it, and I didn't have it up there on the screen. Let me get it up on the screen for you guys. Sorry if I'm off my game a little bit today, guys. But there you go, right there. Those are freaking delicious. And I think I could eat a 100 of those. And this is why I like to do the leg and breast separated. So if you're not going to do that, then I would basically crack the breast and flatten the breast so that you have the breast splayed, kind of like spatchcocking a chicken. But to me, this is, this is, this is the way. This is the way forward when it comes to, uh, just making your life as easy as possible. So let's talk about the basics of a stacked cage system. Uh, this is how most people are going to start. And I would say that I'm even going to say some things that are kind of negative about growing quail 100% indoors in a stack. Don't let that stop you from doing it. What it should make you do is pay very close attention to your birds, follow the advice I'm going to give you, learn from your experience, and make sure that the life of your quail in those cages is acceptable, right? It might not be a nirvana life, but overall, those birds are happy. And that has to do with not, not being unserious about the fact that you're caring for a living creature and not trying to eke out how many thousand birds can I produce in a, in a you know, a 24 square foot space? That's trophy hunter mentality. And I think most people will find they don't need to do that. That if you can produce a meal or two a week for your family of four, that is plenty. And I don't even think you'll have a hard time doing it if you follow the advice that I'm going to give you. And you accept that these birds can do things that maybe they shouldn't. You may find in some instances people are taking a fairly narrow, deep, like two foot deep and only one foot wide cage, and they're putting five birds in it, four to one, four females to one male. And it works, but it may still not be optimum. And, but then there's a difference between that and if you're taking those birds and you're growing them out and they're only in there for six weeks. And we just need to be mindful uh, of what we're doing with a living creature. So again, that is kind of the, the standard is four females to one male. And, the, the the issue gets to be if you have a group of birds in a cage together and one of them's getting picked on and it has like a bloody head or something like that, once that starts, it will continue until that bird is dead. It needs to be removed. 
and 99 times out of 100, that bird is going to be a male. The females will eventually decide, I don't like this little guy that has this access to breed me anytime he wants to anymore. I've had enough of his shit, and he's got to go. And generally, four girls will accept one guy. But if you have, like, two girls and two guys, the girls will gang up on the weaker one and kill it. Or if you try to go higher and you have, like, six females and two males, they'll gang up on kill it. Or if you have six males and one male, they'll gang up on and kill it sometimes. And you'll, you'll have to figure out, you know, how your ratios work. But you'll generally get really good fertility of your eggs in a one-to-four ratio. And I personally recommend that I don't think you're giving up too much space, given the product productivity of these animals. One male, four females, two-foot-by-two-foot cage. And no, you can't produce as much that way, but you can, you will, you will get rid of most of the problems you hear about with birds picking on each other, uh, scabbing, bloody heads. It'll almost all go away if you'll accept that limitation for your breeders, for your layers slash breeders. You can also say if you don't really need fertile eggs, you don't need any males. And then you have girls kind of get along. You know, you could go to five females per cage and maybe only have a few males that you keep with a small number for fertility, and then you can kind of move those guys around at times to increase your productivity. But I'm going to tell you that I would mitigate that as well because what usually happens is that cluster of five, they kind of accept that dude, and they may not, they may or may not accept the next guy that you try to bring along and introduce. The other side of this, and I'm going to talk about aviaries in a minute, Almost all this goes away in an aviary. I have a 10 by 50 foot aviary I kept quail in. I'm going to show you a video that will kind of show a little bit of it uh, in a minute. And I had over 100 birds in there at one time, and I never had a bird pick on another bird in that situation. And this is why we have to be mindful in these stacks. The problem is that they can't get away from each other. So I want you to think about if you have a friend and you like them, you get along. But he's not a guy that you would go away for a weekend with. You, 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 you kind of feel me? Like that you wouldn't take him hunting and go like a three-day hunting trip with him. Or, you know, you gals, you, I'm not going to say you don't hunt. Maybe you go hunting. But, like, let's say, you know, you go shopping with him, but you don't want to go away on a girl's weekend with them. But there's a limit to how, like, it's nothing wrong with, and they, maybe they feel the same way about you. Now, imagine that we put you in a room with that person. And there's nowhere in that room you can even get to where you, you don't see them and you can't get away from them. You might have a lot of problems that normally wouldn't come up. And so this is how you have to think about if you're going to run a stack system. Again, it's not saying not to do it. It's give them more room and pay attention to what's going on. And if you have a male that's being picked on, get him into a, a cage so he heals and then try swapping your males. That may work for you. You might just find that he gets all, like, hey, I can hang out with this dude all weekend long. I can't with this other guy. That's the best way I can explain it. Grow-out cages can be more dense. You can have a two-by-two. Two, you can easily have a dozen birds growing out in there. Because for the first, so you, you're going to be in, a, in, a, in a, um, a brooder with a heat lamp and all. I'm not going to get into how to do that today. But there's plenty of information out there on how to do it for at least two to three weeks, probably two weeks. Now they're going to go into grow-out cages. They're only going to be in there for four weeks. And for two of those weeks, they're going to be half of the size or smaller than they're going to be when you harvest them. 
And what you can do, though, is have some surplus cage space available. And if you start having problems, take the ones that are having problems out. And again, you're going to almost inevitably find out that they're going to be males. And I've kept them in stacks and racks, and I've kept them in aviaries, and I've kept them in tractors. And so when I tell you, like, these are the general rules, I'm, I'm saying it not from something I read. I'm saying it from experience. And that doesn't mean that you might find something to be a little different on your end. But this is going to be the basic general rule. The ones that get picked on are going to be males. You don't want more than one male to four females. And the more space you give, the less conflict you'll have. And especially if you give some space where birds literally have little places they can get away. So, like, in my aviaries... They make these, they're, they're plastic storage bins. You, Home Depot Lowe's have them. And they stack on top of each other, and they basically are three sides all the way full length, and then the front has a dip in it. And we would we use those still for the ducks even for laying boxes. You just turn them upside down and stick them on the ground. So you have like this box with an opening, and they love those things in the aviary, and they mostly laid their eggs in them. And... And, and, and somebody at Grazing Farm said here, this is, this is why the males get, don't think the girls just pick on the males. He said, I call aggressively on males who are turds, males that don't release the female after breeding. My birds are in an aviary and I don't have aggressive bird issues. I stalk two birds to square foot in the aviary. Exactly. And so when you, when you're selecting that next group of birds, You're getting rid of your old birds and you're picking your birds that are going to be your next group of layers. Do what he said, like put leg bands on your birds. And that can be as simple as get multicolor zip ties. And that way different birds in the cage, you all have a different color. And as they start to mature, you can look at the breast, you can see male from female. And if you have a male, as they start to breed or start to exhibit breeding behavior, is a really aggressive male, pull him out. He's going into the early graduation ceremony, right? He's a six-week go-to-the-grill guy. And it, it, that's what I'm saying. If you're going to do stacks, then this is a little bit more of how to think about it. Um, ignore all the bullshit myths about they have to be kept in cages. They can't live outside. Now, I wouldn't have them living free range. Don't get me wrong. But that's more a function of, They're not real smart like chickens where they go home every night and everything eats a quail. You're talking about something half the size of a full-grown bantam chicken. Cats eat them. You know, everything will eat them, and they're not real fast. They're not real smart. So they're not good at avoiding predators. But they can live in an aviary. They will not fly and break their necks. They can be in a cage that's more than 11 inches tall. They won't fly to the top of the cage and break their neck. This is stupidity, and I'll tell you where I think I don't know, but I think it comes from. I think it comes from the fact that there are people that want to CAFO the hell out of these things, and they want to stack floor to ceiling, and they have trophy hunter mentality, and then they want to justify their abuse of the animal. The, the cages, you'll see one later that we did, 24 inches tall, never had a single bird break its neck in there. The um, big chicken tractor that I raised over 100 birds in was three foot tall, was eight foot long and four foot wide, and none of those birds flew into it and broke their neck. My aviary, nine foot high back wall, kind of a lean-to shape, use cattle panels to the front side if you haven't seen it, 10 foot long, I'm sorry, 50 foot long, 10 foot wide. Birds would fly. They can fly better than you think. 
all the way across that aviary. They're not very smart. They'd get to the end, smack into the end, fall to the ground, get up like, oh, that was fun. And they would fly back to the other side, smacking the other wall. It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. It's all bullshit. They won't die if you put them in an aviary. There's tons of people that raised them in aviaries. Again, I'm not anti-stack. I'm just saying let's not freak out and think we need to create this really horrifically small environment for these animals. It's a lot like keeping fish. I keep betas. I have a 30-gallon low rimless tank, beautiful planted tank out in my my main uh, room in my house. And I have, I think there's 20 betas in it. Now, it's a sorority. They're all females, but people will tell you you can't do that either. They are gorgeous fish. Everybody gets along. There are no problems. There's plenty of places where they can hide and get away from each other when one wants to be left alone. There's plenty of plants and places to go. No problems. All the people with a degree in fish science from freaking PetSmart will tell you, I don't recommend Shut up and get me my fish. That's just how I feel when I deal with them. It is the same thing. Animals, if you take two betas and you stick them in a little tiny bowl, they'll fight each other. If you put them in a great big tank, they won't. I know a guy has a 75-gallon tank. It's all betas, males and females, and there's no problems because there's room for everybody to spread out, and there's more females than males. But that beta, even if you don't, Have to, if you're not worried about separation, if you put it in a little tiny cup, that fish will live in that cup. And, and everybody does it. It doesn't mean it's the life that fish wants. That fish is a lot happier in an, in, in a, an environment that's more like it would live in in nature. They, nothing lives, no fish lives in an area depressed in the ground the size of my fist in nature because the water will become stagnant and even a beta that can live in crappy water will die. So just because you can put that many birds into that space, sorry I'm soapboxing, doesn't mean you need to do it. And don't let bullshit mythology lead you down the path of thinking that not only you need to do it, but that it, it it's necessary. Next up, you know, birds need food, water, grit, and dust bath. That they, those four things they have to have. Food, I generally use a game bird ration. And I have found a place called Pony Seeded Feed. For you guys that are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, especially north side of it, it's about 90 miles from my house. If I only had quail, I'd have to severely question going up there to get it. Um, but I have ducks and chickens now. I don't, I don't even personally keep quail at this point, and I don't do that because my wife doesn't eat them, and it's not worth doing it for just me. But I have done it, and, again, everything I'm telling you about them is from experience. If I had quail, I would just get some bags of that that same mix, but at the game bird ratio when I went up there to get it. And it's a it's an all natural product, no GMO, no soy. If you this is like I don't care if it's organic, I don't care if it's all natural, I don't care any of that as much as I care no soy. If you're doing something for eggs. Our customers that have bought eggs from us, again, and it's been chicken eggs, it's been duck eggs, it's been quail eggs, we've had customers who are like, well, I'll try it. I'm not sure. We'd give them half a dozen or something to let them try And they were like, I can finally eat eggs again. And some people, like, they can eat our duck eggs, but they couldn't eat chicken eggs. There are people who have a chicken egg-specific sensitivity. But most of our customers that had an egg sensitivity, it was due to the fact that when you feed soy to an animal that lays an egg, 
That egg is an estrogen bomb and you're ODing on estrogen. And you say, well, why doesn't it hurt everybody? Well, hurt is relative. There are plenty of people that are suboptimum, but it doesn't make them sick. Right? Nobody should be eating massive amounts of phytoestrogens, which is basically estrogen. And if you take an animal that lays an egg, which is an ovum, and you feed it large amounts of something with phytoestrogen in it, soy, it will concentrate those estrogens in the egg. I would rather feed a conventional soy-free feed than feed a pure organic soy inclusion feed. So that's my advice on feed. Um, they need water, obviously. I think that it makes a lot of sense to eat it with a stack, set a bucket up high, fill it with water, plumb some lines in, and use the little uh, little cup drinkers for them. That works great, and then that way you just have to make sure you keep that bucket full. You could even take a low pressure, like a pressure reduction valve, so you're not blowing too much pressure. It'd be a bad idea in a small bucket. And put a float valve in it where that's plumbed into your, your main plumbed in line and it never runs out of water and then you will never have a bird dehydrate. That would be a great idea. You can do feeders to where you have kind of a hopper feeder where you can fill them up and those birds will be good to eat and drink for a week if you're gone. I would only rely on that if you had to because you were leaving. There was no one to check on your birds because there's some other stuff to worry about here that people don't think about. And when I love Ken Berry, but when he says, when he says take quail and put them in a parakeet cage, they produce a lot more waste than a parakeet. And I'll show you what I mean by that here in just a minute. Um, they need grit. And I have grit in the show notes for you. The word grit is, is blue. And it's a grit that I recommend. It is a, a crushed limestone grit that is for chicks. And a lot of people use it for like their parakeets and stuff like that. Well, they're small birds. Uh, oyster shell is great for them. But you need to find the finest ground oyster shell you can find. It doesn't have to be a flower or anything. But it... The, the standard oyster shell you get is too big for them. And so what I will tell you, though, is if you have chickens and you're giving your chickens oyster shell, then what you can do is you buy, like, the typical chicken-sized oyster shells and get a sieve with a smaller mesh and, and fill – because you don't need a lot for them. And so you run that through the sieve, and then you give the, the bigger chunks to your chickens, and the little pieces of the fines that fall through will be perfect for your quail. But I would just use the grit – if they don't have grit, when they start laying, you will, I can't remember what it's called now. It's just lost. Now we got somebody we have to get rid of here. Block user. Um, but basically, God, I can't think of the word now. Their, their, their butt will push out. Uh, and once that, and somebody help me out in the, in the chat. What's that called when that happens? Um, I think it's something with an E, but it just won't come to me right now. But basically, once that happens, that bird needs to be put out. It'll die. And when you feed oyster shell or, or anything fine ground, and it's also helping them with the calcium load as well. Prolapse, that's what it's called. Prolapse. Thank you. Um, prolapsy is, is, it's death to the bird. And if you give them grit, it won't happen. If they don't have a lot of grit while they're growing out before they're laying, it won't be that big of a deal because there's probably calcium in the feed anyway. But as they get close to that, they absolutely have to have grit. And it just makes them healthier anyway. My birds, when I had them tractored, 
And when I had them in the aviary with all the bits and finds of uh, calcium rock around here from the limestone, they didn't really use the grit much. But in the cages, they definitely did. Uh, so they've got to have grit. And they have to have dust baths. If they don't have dust baths, they'll get mites, they get itchy, they have skin problems, and, and it, it denies them something that's an innate behavior. If you have a stack of cages and you put a little pan full of something for them to dust bath in, they will go in there and it will look like a little dust tornado and they will throw it all over your floor and you'll have to clean it up. Kind of the best thing to do is get some sort of a Tupperware thing that's big enough for quail to fit inside of and cut a little door and then fill the bottom and they might spill a little bit out that way, but they'll go in there and they look like a little tempest in a, in a teapot going in there to give themselves uh, a dust bath. All I use for a dust bath is just play sand. And a little bit goes a long way. Like a bag of that shit will last for years. But they have to have that. And once they use that for a while, even though you're containing it, go dump it in your compost and refill it for them. If, if they, they defecate in it, you know, get rid of it because now they're taking a bath in their own poop. And they're not, I don't want to say they're stupid, but they're not smart. I do want to show you real quick. Um, oh, no, one more thing. This idea that they have to have this incredibly high protein feed, I think is also a myth. When I was running my birds, my layers ate the exact same feed that I give to my ducks and chickens. And they did fine. I never tried to do that with young birds growing up. I thought that was reckless to do and reckless to try. But I fed, I fed my birds that were meat birds, uh, a game bird ration, game bird starter. That's what they ate their whole life, six weeks. But when they started producing eggs about a week into full-on egg production, I would switch them over to the what I feed my layers, and I never had one problem. And I'm big on, can I reduce the need for a thing? What can I eliminate? What can I eliminate? And that was something I found that I could eliminate. And I had no negative consequences from eliminating it. I'll show you my stack system. And when I do this, I want you to know these are grow-out birds. And these were also birds that were going into an aviary that wasn't done yet. And the picture you're about to see, I would not have birds this dense. But this was a six-cage uh, stack. And you're seeing the top two cages in it. And this was a cage that was, was made by the same guy that did the quail tracker with us. And they're basically, they can be pulled out of the rack at the top, they have top slides, and that's just a standard, like, baker's rack, uh, restaurant rack. And they're, again, if you look at them, they're two foot by two foot by two foot cubed. And they have the little openings in the front for, for, for eggs to come out. Now, you notice they have feeders and waterers inside them, and that's blocking where the eggs would be. Again, these birds were not laying eggs yet, and I would not have even had them in there as grow-outs at that density but we were just basically, you guys are stuck here until the aviary's done. You're, some of them were stuck until the prototractor was done. And But they did fine. They did fine up to about four or five weeks, even at the density you see there. But this is a, an example of why you don't need as much space as you, as you would think that you would need uh, to be able to, uh, to get a good level of production. Because let's just think about this rationally for a minute here. Let's think about some numbers. So quail will give you at least an egg a day, especially if you play with lighting a little bit and timers and give them a little bit more daylight. 
you can get them to double clutch during peak, meaning that one bird would give you two eggs. But let's just go with one bird, one egg per day, six days a week. So what that means, we have four birds in one cage. That cage will produce two dozen eggs a week at that ratio for us, and we probably can do better. When you're going to incubate eggs to, to hatch out to grow for meat, all you do is every day you get your eggs, you take them in your kitchen, set them on a counter somewhere at room temperature, and leave them alone. They can stay there for 10 to 20 days like that, and they won't start to, uh, to gestate. They won't start to become babies. They'll just kind of be in suspended animation. And one of the people that I know, he said the longest he ever put eggs on the counter was 24 days, and he got like a 98% hatch rate. So I don't know how long that can go, but 10 days is no big deal. So that means just per seven days, each cage produces two dozen eggs. So for a week, even if we have just two cages of four and one, four girls, one male. So, so back when we were on that picture, right, that's just one level. We could have two dozen babies go in the incubator. And any time we want to, We can do that in any given week. We would have 18 days in the incubator. They're going to hatch and go in the brooder. So when we're one week from that day, we start saving eggs again. And we could be doing two dozen meat birds, basically starting them, call it every three weeks, call it 21 days, in perpetuity just for meat birds with just two stacks or two, two, two cages in a stack. We could have two more so that we always have some eggs even when we're reserving to hatch. And we could have two more that are where we have our responsive, I call them responsibility cages. These birds are being abused. I don't want to give them up yet. I am not a, I don't have a body count right yet. So I'm going to move those birds to where they're being protected if they're having problems somewhere else. We could have those two more running four to one. We could have those two more is just girls, and we could have, you could probably do in that two by two, six girls with no problems. And you have, a, so you have a couple cages with no males. Now, if you lose a male, you can always hatch them out. That's part of the beauty here and, and replace them. And again, that bird will be sexually mature in six to seven weeks, either to lay eggs or to breed. And I think that's kind of the responsible way to do them. Again, though, and again, I'm not saying not to do it. I think you have to think of a stack as is like it's like a mini CAFO in your house. So it's not that we couldn't do a CAFO operation and have it be a lot more ethical. It's just that generally they're not commercially done that way. So you need to do it ethically. Um, next, I want to bring up the quail tracker. This is kind of the, the intermediate for me is instead of having an aviary or doing it in a stack system, we're going to do some sort of quail tracker or tractor. And this is the one that we I designed this with two other guys, and I'm not saying – in fact, I'm going to go through right here now and let, let this video play with my mic muted so it doesn't backfeed on you. And I'm not, I'm not saying to build it exactly like this, right? I'm saying that here's an idea, and I actually give you some things I would do differently if we were designing this product today. And if you're listening to the audio um, – This is the part you may want to look up to be able to see it. This video will be available as a standalone video. I shot it this morning. I didn't put it out before the episode because I didn't want to create any confusion. 
All right, guys, I wanted to talk to you about this product. We built this years ago, and honestly, the problem we were trying to solve from a standpoint of shipping, I don't know that it was ever really solvable to make this product something that would ship in a cost-effective manner. I think that you're probably better off building your own or buying from someone who builds cages locally because what we did is we basically half-assembled it. We shipped it with uh, mini, hog nose, mini hog rings and a set of crimpers, and it worked. It was still very expensive to ship. Basically, we made two boxes that folded flat, and you opened them up and put them together. More what I wanted to show you today is this would be an idea for how you could track your quail. We actually called this product the Quail Tracker. Um, I just don't think we had enough horsepower of, of manpower into it. The guy that made the cages was great. He's since passed away. Uh, but the, I run a podcast. I can't market a cage all day long. And the guy that we had as a partner to do that really just didn't do it. Um, we did do a successful Kickstarter with it. We did ship quite a few of them. People liked them. I think it could be better, and I want to go over like what we did, why we did it, and why I think it could be better. So if you look, we have two doors at the top. This definitely made it cost more to manufacture because you're dealing with additional materials and additional fabrication of hatches. But it was very necessary because if you have to remove quail, what do you think happens when you open this one? And you stick your hand in there. They all run over there. So we also, these were not designed like a typical stack quail cage to cause eggs to roll downhill. They actually dropped the eggs onto the ground, ground and it just stayed where it was. And I'll tell you why I think another mod would be a good idea later. But what that meant is you had to go in there and get your eggs every day. And even if you were moving your birds, you still had to get your eggs every day. Now, if you had to get eggs over here from over there, you can see where that would be a problem. We also did a door here on the side, and we did that so that you could actually, if you wanted to, take something like a, uh, a mesh tunnel and tractor them outside of it. If you do that, and it's one of those collapsible tunnels, it actually works pretty well because you can just kind of take the tunnel and like accordion it back in at the end of the day and get them back into your cage, but it's an extra step. My opinion is these things are light because there's no wood in them. They're all, this is like a a rubber-coated, vinyl-coated, galvanized material, and I would definitely recommend using it for an outdoor product. Um, but if you look at this, even though this cage is about, I think it's two by three feet is what they are, roughly, I can pick that up with one hand, my left hand, I can move that. My grandson can move this. I don't think it would be that hard to move it. If it was two of them in width and one of them in length, and that would be a much bigger footprint for your birds outside. So that's one thing I would change. Another thing we did, we created this place here for a feeder. And what we did is we cut holes so that they could stick their heads through and that they could eat out of that feeder. But the truth is it always made it very hard for them to get to the bottom of the feeder. So a lot of the feed could never be reached. We did that to not take up floor space with a feeder and not have them make a mess. I think I would just go with standard galvanized chick feeders inside it. That's what I ended up doing when I experimented with this. It actually worked better for me. The other thing we did is we took like a big piece of four inch PVC pipe, like a tower. We put that adapted down to like a piece of half inch that ran along the bottom. And the little drinker cups, we put those drinker cups in automate watering. That I think I would definitely still do. The big modification though, not only would I make this bigger, I would change the way we did the bottom. So if you look at these bottoms, I think these are one inch. So this would be four square inches. A full grown quail's not getting out of there and it's on the bottom anyway. I would cut that out and I would have one, uh, these, these squares that large, my hand for comparison, all the way around. 
There's a couple things here. One, they're gonna get a lot better access to the ground. They're still protected from predators and from their own stupidity of getting out. There's a bigger thing though. Very few quail eggs are so large as to not fit through that hole. So when you went to move your cage, all you would do is lift your cage, move your cage to the next pace, place and pick up the eggs. You don't have to go inside the cage to get to the eggs. That means your birds are gonna be less stressed out. It's easier for you and the things that are easiest, we do the most. Now, does that mean that some animal could tip that over and get those eggs? Yeah, I mean, you have to you have to think about what's gonna work for you based on your environment. But I would see this as best for like urban environments. The reason I don't do quail anymore is Dorothy doesn't eat them. It's a lot of work to do something that only one person in a household eats. If I can get her to give them another shot, maybe we'll bring them back. But I have an aviary back there. Now it needs some work and I have to decide if I wanna put that work into it or decommission it. But I have an aviary and have enough space it would probably make sense to me that even if I decide that aviary is not worth salvaging, to take the parts from it and rebuild it in a different manner and run quail in an aviary model. There was a lot of problems with the way I did that in there because of the garden beds and they went behind them. But what I also want to say today when I talk about this, some people said that's too high, they'll break their necks. There is a massive amount of 100% bullshit about quail. They have to be kept in a cage. If the cage is higher than 11 inches, they'll fly and break their necks. It's all BS. We kept them in here. We never lost a bird. I had a big chicken tractor that I kept them in. I never lost a bird due to some bird breaking its neck. We had them in there. They used to fly back and forth in there. They loved it in there. The only time I lost one in there, they landed in water. They couldn't get out of it. it had nothing to do with breaking their neck. <laughs> However, there was another problem that came up in that aviary. They cleaned out all the greenery until there was just a nightshade, a wild nightshade that was left growing. They started eating it and they started committing suicide because it's a neurotoxin, it was screwing them up in the head. Once I figured out what it was, pulled it all out, no more problems. So you do have to be careful if you're tractoring them, doing an aviary or whatever, if they run out of green stuff, they'll start eating the green stuff they shouldn't eat. Now they never ate it until they wiped everything else out. But if you want to track your quail, I would start with this design and I would make it as big as is practical for you to still move it easily. And again, I would leave larger gaps because the other thing that happens, if you have gaps like this in a stack system, they're actually too big and they fall through and they're not comfortable. So you need smaller gaps. But it's still all the poop falls through really well in a stack system because they're not up against the ground. You have a pan down here to catch. With this on the ground, these ended up with a lot of poo it stuck to it and what you'd have to do is all you to do is hose it with a, a garden hose because it's this vinyl coated stuff it never had a problem uh but of course the birds didn't like it you had to, it was in an extra step and were you close to a hose or not close to a hose on that day whereas i think if you if you go to a much larger opening in the bottom you're gonna have less of that again quail have more access to the ground so those are my thoughts if you want a tractor this would be a good place to start and again, I would make it wider, probably not longer. Longer is going to be probably more difficult to move. But the beauty is you can make it any size you want. And again, all we're using is a little mini hog ring pliers and hog rings. I'll see if they have those on Amazon. And if so, I'll put a link to them in the show notes for today. Take care, guys, and uh, hope that helps you out. So, guys, um, again... I hope that's helpful uh, to give you some ideas of making your own. And I, I want to point out a problem with using a tractor for quail when you're talking long-duration layers. 
it's very difficult to give them true shelter from elements. And that's why I like an aviary better if you want to do something other than a stack. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Now, what you could do, and I was trying to remember when I shot that video why I wanted to change the door on the side. So on the side, you notice the door opened outward. And I couldn't remember. And this is why I wanted to do it. If you had two cages like you just saw, if the doors went in instead of out when you opened them, like little ramps for them to come out on, it would be real easy to take two of them and put them together and like temporarily tie wrap them together and then wrap one in something like one of the things we used to put over for them when they needed protection from rain or the elements is like the canvas, like a shelter half from a USGI army shelter half. Cause you can get those really cheap and they're really strong and they last a long time. And just being able to block that wind or block that rain because rain is bad for them if they have no way to get out of it. What happens is they get cold. Like in the, in the summer, it's not that big a deal, but in the fall, winter, spring, they get cold and they all bunch together up against the wall and the combined weight basically kills the ones that are furthest in the stack. So I, I don't really like tractoring as a long-term solution. Now, if you are small backyard operation, you're talking like one or two cages, you can stay on it, you've got a posted stamp lot, you can, the other thing you can do is you can build a coop that attaches to that cage. Again, this would be another good reason to have that door open inward so you get a nice, it's not in your way when you're trying to abut one thing to another. You give them a little plywood coop or something like that they can go into. That'll work. It's one more thing to deal with, but if you're not, if you're not me and you're not dealing with 50 ducks and you're not dealing with three dogs and you're not dealing with a flock of chickens and you're not dealing with three acres of crap, it probably wouldn't be a big deal. So don't let me talk you out of it. That's just where my head is in this game when I'm, when I'm thinking about it. Um, for me, I like the aviary idea better and I would say that you can do a really decent aviary a 10 by 10 aviary run a ton of quail and put a little coop inside the aviary for them. And, and I'm not really going to get into aviaries much today, but I would just say it would not be that difficult to do. Now I did mention that there's some problems with my aviary. One of the problems with my aviary, when I built it, even though I used good pressure treated lumber, that, that lumber is touching the ground and I'm starting to get some rot down there. It's like eight years in. But I'm starting to get some rot down there, and I need to make a hard decision if it's worth the money. To, I have a way to fix it. I won't get into it right now. But I would put down, like, half cinders and build on top of those, and you won't have that problem. Uh, I did mine with a nine-foot back wall and cattle panels and then quarter-inch hardware cloth. I would probably just do straight stick walls, uh, pressure-treated lumber, sitting on top of that. You could even go, like, since your dimensional lumber is eight-foot, you know, two eight-foot walls, 16-foot length, 10-foot wide, it's 160 square foot. That'll fit in most backyards. You know, you can make it look like whatever you want. And it does need to, it does need to have something that will protect them from anything getting into them. So the one thing I did with my aviary that I would recommend you really consider doing is I took my hardware cloth all the way. I dug a trench. I took my hardware cloth underground and, bare, and then bent it out with a brake. A break is just a bend in wire, so about a one-foot break. So if something tries to tunnel into there, they're tunneling into the hardware cloth itself. Uh, the other thing you can put down is like diamond lath. So if you don't want to go into the ground with it, you, you just dig just a little bit under the ground and lay diamond lath. If you don't know what that is, just look it up. And anything that tries to dig 
diamond laugh. It's going to get bloody paws and it's going to stop trying to get in there. Um, and, and it works really well having that aviary. I think that the, the happy compromise though, we have our stack. Our stack is our layers and our males that are our breeders. And this is like the core critical process element to our system. And we don't want them to die and we don't want them to get sick and we don't want them to go away. So they're in the garage. We build a brooder indoors, which I'm not going to get into today, but there's tons of information on quail brooders. It's basically a mini chicken brooder. And we brood our birds until they're big enough to go out into a tractor. We take our meat birds. We tractor our meat birds for the last four weeks of their six-week to seven-week life. And then the beauty of that is I wouldn't want to be a quail in a tractor outside in this heat right now in Texas. It's 109 freaking degrees today. And I don't want to go out there and deal with one more thing in my summer when it's 109 degrees. So it takes six weeks to make a meat quail. It's about three to four weeks on the tractor. All I have to do is time my hatch rate to the time of year for me that makes the most sense for doing my meat runs. And maybe I do two or three a year. I don't do it in January when it's freaking freezing. And I don't do it in August when it's a billion degrees. I do a couple in the spring, a couple in the fall. I produce all my meat, and I only do that extra work during that period of time. And I think that's probably the best solution for the most people if you want to get kind of a pastured poultry component into the food you're actually eating. Now, can you do layers and get away with it? Yeah, but like I said, it's going to be more work. If you're doing a meat run and a cold front or a rainstorm runs in, you throw a tarp over your chicken, your, your quail tractor, and you go on with your life. There's another thing in this, though, with tractoring. As you get into warmer months, sun. They, you can bake the poor little guys to death. Again, they can't get away. So coming with some sort of a shade, all that I did was take a scrap piece of plywood that had a pretty good eave around the cage, so it was like a good foot. So if you had a three-foot cage... It was like a four and a half foot long, two foot wide. It was like a three and a half foot wide piece of plywood. I just put it up on top of the cage. And then that way there was an eave, meaning that when sun was coming in at the side, it still provided quite a bit of shade. And if it got the sun got really low and it was still intense, you just took the thing and tilted it to one side. But you got to think about that. Like it is not like doing chickens. They're a much smaller bird. They're, they have much more risk at exposure to the elements. And it's so much easier and it, because I know the people that do them are going to less likely be homesteaders. If you're a homesteader, you're going to do quail. You're probably going to do them fully. I just want them, so I'm going to do them in a stack, or I'm going to put them in an aviary. It's going to be the suburbanite who works till 6, 7 o'clock at night every night that's leaving that tractor sit all day long. You're going to have to think more about that, right? And that would be a kind of a great compromise. We per Just like doing chicken tractoring. We produce our meat birds and then we're done for the year or we're done for the quarter or we're, we're not, you know, we, we're done for spring. We're going to go again in fall and then we're done for winter. And if I was doing it with tractors, that's, that's what I would personally do after all the experience I've had doing it. Um, and then I would also say that this gives you another option. So let's, let's explain kind of the life cycle of a system like this and regenerating our own stock out of it. Maybe occasionally we go out and we get a few males from somebody else's genetics so we don't get too much inbreeding. But the basics are we have been raising our quail in our stacks for meat and or eggs for 16 months. 
And now we need to look at the calendar. Because we know at 18 months, those birds are going to blow all their feathers out. And when they blow all their feathers out, they're going to have to go through a six-week cycle to regrow their feathers. And they're not going to lay eggs worth a crap during that time. And then when they come back into production, they will lay eggs for us again, but they will never be at peak production ever again. And it makes a lot of sense at that point to set aside eggs, think about our male-female ratio, hatch way more eggs than we need to get enough girls and boys to replace what we're getting rid of and allow us, like uh, I remember who was said now, but aggressively cull our males. So we definitely want to be able to you know, aggressively cull males. If we have a male, I'm telling you guys, he's right. I don't know who that person's real name is, but... If you have a male and it breeds and it's, it's, it's done the deed and it doesn't let go, it, it hangs on instead of going, okay, that's done. We're done. Those girls are going to kill that bird. And it is better that you recognize that and you extract that bird and replace it with a male that's a little bit more agreeable to them. Um, but you've, you've done that. You take your birds, you go into an incubation stage. You're going to get a meat yield out of that alone because you're going to produce more than you're going to need to replace. Now take your old birds and give them three or four weeks of expanded freedom. Put them in the tractors, run them outdoors, let them get grass, let them get clover, let them get whatever bugs they find. Let them put fertility in your land and finish them on grass. Kind of the opposite of what they do with cattle where the cattle start on grass and they finish in a feedlot. They're in a feedlot situation. That's, let's be honest, it's what it is. And they're producing for you. They are egg and baby machines. And you're going to let them end their life out there and kind of give them that opportunity to rebalance that omega-3, omega-6 oils because now they're getting things from pasture. Maybe they're out there for a full six weeks. I don't know. But I'll tell you what. If you're like, be nice to have some plucked birds. You pluck them. If you want to go through plucking, you pluck them at the height of the molt. They pluck really easy. I'm just saying. Now, the other side of that. These are not your wrap them in a piece of bacon, hit them with some Worcestershire sauce and beer and some jalapeno oil, and throw them on the grill birds. They're going to be much tougher. These are going to be your slower-cooked stewing birds. Uh, one way I really used to like to make the coal birds, I would use a seasoning called Ras Al-Hunut and, 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 and do a slow cook with them in what's called a tagine, which is a – uh, a terracotta cooking vessel. I'll see if I can, if I remember. Uh, we got another person that needs to be banned. Block user. Why do, why do we attract all these porn and dating sites for the, for the freaking live stream about quail? Anyway, uh, and, and they're just much better for your kind of slower cooking, your broths, your stews. Think of them like a stewing hen, like a coal hen. They're not rubber, but they're much tougher. They also make, if you guys have heard me talk about making coca vin, which literally means cock with wine, which is a, uh, a French recipe for older coal roosters. They're fantastic in, in a coca vin type uh, arrangement. So that's something else you can do with them. Dealing with a waste stream. This is why I don't like the idea. And I love Ken Berry, but Ken Berry's never kept quail. And so the idea that you're going to put them in a parakeet cage and then you have your apartment dweller and they're, you know, they're in their parakeet cage. And it'll be just like keeping parakeets. That is a big wheelbarrow that you see on the picture right there. A big wheelbarrow. 
That is one of like the two front wheel wheelbarrows, right? Um, that stack of six cages, that's one wood chip exchange from that, those six cages. That's that wheelbarrow for those who can't see it is close to 50% full. That's a lot of waste and you have to do it because if you don't, it really stinks. There's a certain amount of carbon that the nitrogen poop can go on. And once you go past it, it's, it no longer does the magic thing that we expected it to do for us. It's kind of over and done with. And we have smell problems. Now, this is a good thing, but you need to make sure if you're designing your own systems, you saw the trays that I had, you just pull the trays out and you dump the trays. You need that. You do not want the tray inside the cage with the birds. You have to have an opening in the bottom. The birds poop. The poop falls through, lands on the carbon. And then we need to deal with that waste stream. And there's really three ways to do it that I can think of. I think the best one for most of you guys that are going to be doing this because I can't do chickens. This is this just makes sense for me is a worm bin composting system. And a decent-sized worm bin, you see how much is in there? You dump that in that worm bin, the worms are going to go freaking berserk, and you're going to go back in four days, you're going to be like, where did it go? And you're going to be harvesting the hell out of worm casting compost and compost tape. And you put that straight onto your plants, and you're gold. And the only reason I didn't do it here is fire ants. And if you live in the southeast to mid-south, like Texas, over to Florida, up into the Carolinas, where you have a large fire ant population, you may find it takes extensive effort to have a fire ant-proof worm bin. I know how to do it. It's not worth it to me. I would basically need a swimming pool, and then you have some kind of stand in the swimming pool, and then you have the worm bin over, like, a water trough. And then, of course, the worm juice is going to drop down in there, so you need to drain that frequently, or you need to take it with some sort of a drain off to another location, and that would be the only way. If I put worms in anything other than my ebb and flow beds, within two weeks, the fire ants invade and kill all the worms. So what would I do? I would just put it into my standard comp. Whatever your standard composting procedure is, you put it into that. Then the other thing you could do is basically set it and forget it piles. So this is what's cool about this. Because they've pooped on some sort of carbon, so wood chips are generally what you would use, aspen shaving, something like that. You have a carbon-nitrogen ratio that's good enough. It may not be perfect. It may not be 16-2 or whatever. I, I don't care. It'll work. And so you can take something like a big ring of... Uh, goat fence or something like I use for my Johnson Sioux-like stuff, and just throw it in there and throw a tarp over it. And when your next batch comes, yes, you're throwing timing off. Throw it in there, throw a tarp over it, wet it down again. Throw, and keep doing that till it's full, then tarp it and start another one. By the time you fill another one, because you're going to have a pretty big reduction of, of volume if you use this non-turn method, you'll have great compost. You take that compost and you use it. And then you start, so you can do two or three uh, of those, or you could do the garbage can 
three garbage can method that I have a video in the MSB for you guys about. It's old, low production quality video, but it's a pretty simple, simple method. Three, uh, three, t- like tough guy, uh, garbage cans, like your, your 40 gallon cans. You drill some holes in them. You put some pipe in them. You fill it up. You fill the next one up. You fill the third one up. You go back to the first one. You're ready to go, but you got to deal with that waste stream. And it's more than you think it's going to be. Those little guys are professional poopers, man. I would say that they produce about three to four times what like a, like if you think of like a parakeet or something like that of similar, a budgie or something would produce. Plus think about the number of them. So when people say, well, I had a, you do a parakeet, you know, and it wasn't that big a deal. And once a week it was a small one, you just dumped it in the garbage or Yeah, but you don't have one. You have a bird that's about twice the size and every cage has five or six of them in it. It's a lot of waste and it's a hell of a valuable waste product. And if you can do a worm bin, that would be the way to go. Um, some ways to boost, boost protein and we can start the function stack now. So I'm going to see if Dan's comment here. Dan says black soldier fly lover closed some of the waste loops similar to duck water and plant feeding them. Uh, please remind me of the name for the plant for the ducks. That's water hyacinth that I used to feed the ducks. So I have a system where I have an eight by 16 foot shallow pond full of bullhead catfish. And I have a plant there called water hyacinth. And I literally divert some of the duck waste water straight into the pond. It grows the crap out of the water hyacinth. I feed the water hyacinth back to the ducks. We can do something like that here with what Dan said. So the black soldier flies will devour that waste stream. The only thing is you got to learn how to do black soldier flies as a, as a thing, as a composting thing. And I'll see if I, if I don't forget somebody that follows me on Twitter built a really cheap BSL bin because there's a certain angle that they want to climb up when they're ready to get out of the bin. And there's very expensive round bins that have like that angle on a little ledge around the side and they self harvest. Basically you have a little bucket. And then the, the black soldier fly larvas, when they're ready to pupate, they climb up and they fall out the hole and they go in the can. And you just throw them in the freezer and then you, you use them whenever you want to feed them and they would be great feed right back to the quail. So you're making compost, you're generating the black soldier fly larva, you're increasing the fat and protein diet of the quail, you're going back in. So you're getting the, the, the worms, the compost and feed from the worms back in. And it's very good compost. But remember I said worm bins? If you don't think Hortonic's quail are predatory and you don't think they'll eat red wigglers, well, compost worms, you ain't never put some in front of them. They will devour them. So you can do the same thing with a standard worm bin, including an indoor worm bin, if we're not doing that many quail. And feed that waste stream, and you can go in and just harvest some of your worms, put them in. Again, remember I talked about the little tornado protector, like a, 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 what do you call it, like a Tupperware with a hole in it so they can go in there and dust bath? Make something like that, throw the worms in it, and stick that in there for them. Because you don't want the worms ejecting themselves down into the bin or whatever, right, and getting away in your garage or what have you. Um, They will eat the hell out of red wigglers, too. So that's a way we can augment the protein. So now we've that's kind of saved this to the end because now we're just going to take that waste stream that was previously a problem and we're going to tie it into a solution. Um, the other thing you can do, and I have links to this already, so I won't forget, you can buy black soldier fly 
larva and mealworms on Amazon really pretty cheap. And you can buy five or ten pounds at a time. And I think what you have to understand when you're thinking about doing this and you're looking at the price and you're thinking that does seem kind of expensive still, we're not talking about feeding them 100% on this. What we're talking about is we put our feeder out for this group of birds today. We reach into our thing of black soldier fly, and these are you know dehydrated, and we grind a small handful of them into the, the feed, maybe mix it a little bit so they don't just pick it, cherry pick it all off the top, close the feeder up and stick it inside. And if you think about quail don't really eat that. Quail are an incredible high yield relative to input feed animal. And so a 10-pound thing of black soldier fly larva that will cost you about 50 bucks if I remember right, will probably last you a year in an average stack if you're doing that. They don't even need it all the time. We can do that, and we can boost it like maybe every other day, maybe every third day. Just it would be good to have a schedule so you don't forget when you're supposed to boost it. But there's another thing here. Some of y'all have written in, and you're very concerned because you're forward-thinking people because you're preppers. Well, I could be doing all this, and then there could be a supply squeeze in the high-protein feed. And even if you say, well, you don't really need high-protein for your layers, you do need for your grow-out, and there could come a time where I can't produce meat because I can get feed, but I can't get the high-protein feed. A 10-pound bag of black soldier fly larva that's been dehydrated has a life expectancy that's practically infinite. So you could lay up a 10, you just get two 10-pound boxes, supplement out of one of them till it's gone, buy another one when it's almost gone, and always have at least 10 pounds in reserve. Now if you need to produce meat during that period, you can supplement every feeding of your meat. Now, I do not, I do not, def, I do not recommend growing your own mealworms. But I could be wrong. I'm open to being wrong about this. But my wife, when we started keeping the birds, was like, I want to do something. I want something that's mine, that's for this. And I'm like, okay, do whatever you want. So she looks stuff up and she learns how to grow mealworms using oatmeal to feed them and blah, 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 blah. And she got this little, like, couple little plastic drawer systems, and you sort them and all. And she did it for, like, six weeks. And she said, this is so not worth it. And I said, I think you're right. I, th I, th I think you're right. And we just decided we were never doing it again. And when I looked, that I could buy five pounds of, now, this is dried weight mealworm for, like, 30 bucks. And I think, what would it take, unless I was a dedicated mealworm producer, to make a five-pound bag of dry weight mealworms, which is probably, what, 12 pounds wet weight, 12 pounds live weight? I ain't doing it. So let's go to some more of your uh, questions and things here. Ron Cole Jr. says, can you talk about stealth quail raising, California Fish and Wildlife State? You need a breeder's permit to raise quail in California. So obviously the first thing would be move out of California. Second, people don't complain about what they don't see, what they don't smell, and what they don't hear. I'd say a stack indoors is the way to go, including you could even put it in probably a freaking building permit, $9,000 worth of compliance, but like a, a tough shed outside that had some level of climate control to it, you could do it out there and then nobody sees anything. 
And I also question whether they really say what you think they say. Because you need to make sure when you're reading what the state says you are and are not allowed to do, that you're reading it as it was written, not as you're reading it. And what I mean by that is you probably do need a permit to raise button quail or uh, anything like that, any kind of a game bird. Courtney's quail are a game bird nowhere in the world. So it may not even apply. So I would make sure that's the case. You even need to worry about it before you worry about it. Uh, but again, just indoors. That's all. They, nobody's going to be like, they're not going to be the, the California version of the ATF isn't going to rope into your garage to find your quail. Um, don't tell your neighbors. Now do know this. Males make a sound. It's kind of like a crow. And it's kind of like, like that, right? That's the best I can do. It can be a bit annoying. Um, but if they're in a closed building, I don't think most, and they don't do it constantly. They're not like roosters where that rooster gets out in the morning. He's like, it's just on and on and on. They here and there throw one off. And I think most Karens would just assume it's some kind of a bird. They wouldn't know that that's what it was. What are some recommendations on housing the quail? I think we covered that, Scott. Um, but again, I think your, your big choices are going to be aviary, tractor, and stack. And I really recommend those of you that want to give tractoring a try. I would do a stack for your breeding colony, your egg producers, and I would just tractor your meat birds because you select your time, your place, your presence. Uh, do new chicks need electrolytes for the first few weeks? I never worried about it. Uh, now, I do have well water with a lot of mineral content in it, but I have never had a problem with uh, with young quail having any problems with a basic diet of a game bird starter, good water, and chicret. That's 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 all I've ever given them. And I, if anybody knows different, go ahead and drop it in the comments and I'll caps for us and we'll come back to it toward the end. Uh, Holodormo 4.0, do you have anywhere else we can send you pics of our setups? You can send me anything you want to. Dun, dun, dun. Jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC in the subject line. That's how you send stuff to me no matter what it is. Any recommendations on a worm bin? Uh, there's tremendous amounts of info out there on worm bins, but probably the most simplistic is like 37-gallon Rubbermaid tubs, holes in them, three levels. But you, you, for, because when you get into this type of volume, you're going to need a lot of worms. But let's go another way. This is actually a great system to do worm towers with if you have lots of gardens. So worm towers, we take a pretty big piece of pipe and we, we dig a hole right in the center of our raised bed garden or in, in our regular garden beds. And we put that a couple feet down into the soil and pretty much grow some holes in it so, so nutrient and water and critters can pass in and out. Throw a couple handfuls of already composted compost in, seed it with that. Throw a handful of composting worms in it and just start dropping your waste stream into it and it, they'll just kind of work it down into it and it'll naturally dissipate into the ground. I, I did, When I said there was only a few ways to handle this, that would be another way to do it. That would be another way to do it. But I would just look up worm bins on YouTube and there's, you know, here's the thing. Your volume And what you want to do from a work standpoint, whether you want it in your garage, outdoors, in your basement, whatever, that's all going to be different. 
So just look up other people's systems and just understand this is not that complicated and it's not that critical. I've seen people simply take a big stock tank and take some hardware cloth and make a divider in it. So you have, because the worms can easily go through that, and then you put in some composted manure in the bottom, and then you, you start adding your waste stream, and all you do is you add one side until it's full, and obviously you want to cover a worm bin. You don't want it uncovered, but like a couple layers of wet burlap work fine for this, and once one side's full, you just start filling up the other side. And by the time you fill up the other side, you're ready to start harvesting castings out of this side. And, and then you just keep doing that. I've seen it done with bathtubs. I've seen it like it, this is not I, I think that here's here's the problem that we have in our modern day. There's so much information out there and there's so many people that are trying to make a living making content. It's not bad. It's what I do. But they get so particular into and I used a one eighth inch drill bit to drill my drain holes. It is, and I, I always say that, like, I'll put something out and there'll be some holes in it. You know, what size drill bit would that, was that? I don't know. I really don't. Like, I look at the, the, the bit box and I'm like, yeah, that looks about right. And I just pop holes and like, don't let fear stop you from doing any of this, guys. Get some caging put together, figure out the basics of it. Get us, you know, start with less than you want, perfect your craft and expand. Chickens, same. Sheep, same. Like, I just talked to Nicole this week. She's like, I am so crazy for adding two new animals in one season. I'm like, yeah, you are. And she was talking about the sheep. She's like, the, you know, the sheep right now, we don't have the infrastructure right now. And she's like, I should have started with three. Even though it was a bad idea to do rabbits and sheep in, in a single season as two new animals I never did before, if I did three sheep instead of, like, nine, this would be so much easier. There you go. Instead of being like, I want to produce 9 million tons of quail, learn how to run two stacks, four and one, produce meat and eggs. Produce eggs for two weeks and hatch them for a meat run, and then produce eggs, just eggs, harvest your meat, and look at it at the end and go, okay, I want double this. Okay, put in two more cages. I want triple this, then put in two more, like four more cages, right? But before you put in four more cages, put in two more cages. Make sure it really isn't more work than you want to do. Just ease into this stuff. And this is the beauty with quail. Quail will produce food for you faster than a garden. Like, yeah, you can grow radishes in, what, like three, four weeks or something like that, or microgreens really, really quick. But quail, you can get quail, baby quail from somebody on Craigslist near you. And in seven weeks, if you're like, this sucks, I don't want to keep take care of these things, you just eat them. Like, don't, don't let this stuff get in your way, guys, really. I mean, it, 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 it's not really as hard as people seem to think. Uh, Karen says, how many quail would that feed? I think you meant that feed for a year. I don't know because I don't know what that is. So when you, when you ask me a question midstream, it'd be good if you let me know what you're asking. But um, if you're asking on bags of feed, when I had like a 100 quail, they were going through like two and a half, three bags a month. They just do not. Now, these were in the aviary, and they were getting greens and kitchen scraps and stuff like that. But they just don't eat anywhere near as much as a chicken does. And the eggs were infinitely more profitable. But if you want to be like clarify that for me, Karen, I will come back to it. 
um, the grazing farmstead said, keep growing sweet potatoes and feed leaves and vines to the quail, uh, 30% protein. They love sweet potatoes. They love sweet potatoes. So if I was doing a new aviary, I would come up with a whole new way to do some wicking beds in it. Where the Because what happened that made my aviary cramped and crowded and a problem is I was using 50-gallon tubs as wicking beds, and they were up against the wall. And there was little tiny gaps in the back. And those people like, well, just lay a lay a egg anywhere. This is another, you know, mythology. Well, because you kept it in a cage where it had no place to go lay an egg. When we put them in the aviary and we put those egg boxes in there, they went in those egg boxes and they loved laying eggs all in one place. It looked like a little chicken nest. We even had one that almost went broody for us. Right? So this, again, there's so much mythology, but, um, what we did do and what worked really good, I had the wicking beds and I planted, I planted sweet potato in, I don't care what was in the wicking bed, I planted sweet potato in every wicking bed. And then the vines grew over and they can fly, but they weren't big on like flying up into a bed to eat. So those vines would grow to the ground and they would eat the vine and then the vine would grow back and then they would eat it. It was like a conveyor belt of feed. And so what that makes me wonder, and I never did feed them this, but um, I also grow a plant called Ipamira aquatica. Uh, AKA Kang Kong, uh, Taiwanese water spinach, it has like a million names. And it's a sweet potato family plant and it, it's a water plant and it grows stupid fast. Like stupid, stupid, stupid fast. And it's like sweet potato in that once you have it growing, you can cut a piece and stick it in moist soil and it will root in a week and start growing more. I bet they'd eat the hell out of that and I guarantee you they would eat water hyacinth. And all of those are in the 30th percentile of protein. Just remember when we say things like it's got 30% protein or whatever. Yeah, it does, but live weight, right? Live weight. That's, that's the, uh, that's, that's what we're talking about when we say it is, uh, it's got high protein. So that would be you dried it out. So we're not talking about, we're not talking about the, uh, the water in it. So if you take sweet potato, that's the thing. Sweet potato doesn't have that much water. So when you're, when you're told it's 30% protein, it's, it's pretty high protein even as a green. When you look at something like water hyacinth, like I've filled up a four foot high, three foot round piece of goat fence with water hyacinth kind of pushed down and let it go for a couple days and it's like three inches of dry leaf. So there is limits to what we can do with this. Grazing Farmstead said you can, can you, uh, repeat the name of that green? Ipamira aquatica, also known as Kang Kong or Taiwanese, Chinese, Vietnamese, blah, 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 water spinach. It is one of the most productive plants in the world. It is an aquatic plant and you may find it is illegal in your state. Uh, Texas a few years ago realized it was dumb to make it illegal. And as long as you are not transporting it, or shipping it without a permit, you can grow it for personal use. Uh, basically, uh, politically correct culture for the win. There were a whole group of people down in Houston uh, that were of like Vietnamese, Korean, et cetera, descent that said you're 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 just you're uh, discriminating against us. We have a long history of using this plant, and it doesn't just it doesn't have legs. It doesn't walk in places where it's a problem. It already is in places where it freezes. It can't be, and so they made an allowance as long as you were not doing it commercially. Uh, you could, you could grow it. 
Karen says a question, how long would it feel? How much, how much would the mealworms a 50 pound bag? So, uh, the, the, the bag that was 50 bucks is a 10 pound bag of black soldier fly larva. And I think they are a better feed for poultry as far as a nutritional profile, uh, protein and fat, et cetera, uh, than mealworms. So that's what I was talking about. The, a 10 pound bag for $50. A black soldier fly larva, if you were using it the way I said as an additive, would probably feed a standard stack of quail for like six months to a year. Now, if you were only feeding them that, I don't have any idea. But I'm just kind of in my head seeing a volume of 10 pounds of what they look like and thinking of a small handful every other day in their feed. And 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 I, I think that even if you were doing meat quail, that's what once a day, that would be enough of a protein fat kick. Because remember, one of the things, we think we have this huge protein requirement for, for birds. We don't have as high a protein requirement as we think we do. You have to ask yourself, when it comes to feed, and you're feeding a bird, if the protein is lower, what's higher? And the answer is carbohydrate. All right, so carbohydrate's great at putting on fat. It's not great for building blocks of muscle and bone and stuff like that. But what is great for it? Protein and fat. So when you look at um, a feed for layers and it's like 18% protein, it's it's very low fat on the other end of it, right? So if we drop from 27% game bird protein down to 18% layer, we drop, what is that, like 11% protein. We've also increased probably 10% carbohydrate. But if we're feeding something like black soldier fly larva, which except for what's in the gut is all protein or fat. And I think it's something like 40% or higher fat. Well, now that bird can get as much growth energy from that fat as it could have from protein. So it's not just the protein number where most vegetative sources, when you go higher, when you go lower protein, you go higher carbohydrate. And this is like one of the greatest things you can grow for any livestock is black oil sunflower microgreens. Go look up what the protein and fat content of microgreen sunflower is. I don't remember what it is off the top of my head, but uh, it's really good. So Roger said, what happened to the quail tractor project? I just showed a video of it. Um, we did it. Uh, one of the partners didn't really do what he was supposed to do. The promotional marketing run the website guy. Uh, it's typical when you do partnerships. Uh, it tends to be that people are all in in the beginning and then, you know, one doesn't pull their weight. Not a bad guy or anything, just didn't do it. And the other gentleman was the cage maker and uh, he passed away. And so it was just, we did it and there would have been a 2.0 version. And if you missed it, Roger, I went over that cage and how to make them yourself. The other thing was it was expensive to ship it. It's a big bulky item. So what we did is we came up with a way where basically we built it halfway. We shipped it with the rings and the pliers, and that way it would fold flat in a box. But it's still a awkward-shaped large box, and it made the shipping really cost-prohibitive. If you look at the most successful quail stack cages you can buy and have shipped, they're made out of plastic, and they're completely snapped together. So they, they weigh very little, and they ship really flat in really small boxes. They're also what I don't like about them is they're 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 long, narrow, small, square footage, and I, I won't rehash what I said when we talked about stacks. I think stacks are fine, 
But just imagine you have to live with five friends in a room that you can't get away from them in. You'd want the room to be a little bit bigger. So anyway, hope that helps you guys. I think this is, uh, and Goofy Rufy says, I think Lawton said it's the most prolific growing green, if I remember. I think it is. Uh, Bill Mollison was hugely fond of it as well. The most productive plant by weight per square foot in the world that you can just eat is, ding, 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 trivia moment, the Chinese water chestnut. A lot of those Asian aquatic plants, they're, they're extremely, extremely efficient. Guys, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I hope it gives you a new look at quail. If you have questions I didn't answer, again, I was, I'm an hour and 43 minutes here. Um, Guys, there is a lot of there's there's a lot of of option here when it comes to what you can do. I will make sure I don't forget and I do link to the Q and A show I did. It's three hours and forty five minutes, and because it was so long, we even time stamped it. So you can look at the notes from that old show and be like, "Oh, there's my question." Click that time stamp and jump right to it. Thank you guys again. Hope you enjoyed today's show. I really do think this is the best system for the most people. And you can pick and choose how you make it work. Just start small and ease into it. Remember, you can always support our show. How? Do your online shopping at tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today's item of the day, it's back. It's back. The Turkish-made folding, harvesting, and pruning knife. I love this thing. I love this thing. It's become one of my number one go-to. I use it all the time on the homestead. It's like my number one um, gardening tool today. I was always a big fan of what's known as a rice knife. Uh, I learned about those originally from Jeff Lawton. And a rice knife is basically a folding hand or a, a small hand sickle with a serrated blade. So instead of being in and, and chopping with it, you can draw the blade across and it basically saws through. Well, it was designed to, to, to harvest rice. So you would saw through the rice stalk. And because they work so well for that, and some have the angle of the teeth where it's better to go forward, some more to the rear, this particular one, which is actually not a rice knife, but it's like a rice knife. It, if you look at, if you're watching the video right now, you can see the way the teeth are made. It's better to pull instead of push when you're cutting with it. But my problem always with a rice knife was they don't really, none of them are really worth having like a custom-made scabbard made for them. And the scabbards that come with them are crap, and they don't carry well. And if you just, like, stick one in your back pocket, inevitably you'll reach back and cu you'll cut the crap out of yourself. And since it's a rated blade, it has a really nasty cut, and it probably has dirt and goo and crap on it. So you end up setting it down, and when you set a thing down, you don't remember to pick it up, and you lose it. These are like a giant folding knife, and they fit right in the back pocket of a pair of jeans. I have some other pictures here. I even have a video on it. But you can see if I go down here, that's what one looks like fully deployed. Uh, that's one next to a rice knife where it's folded up to give you. So when you look at that other picture, that's a rice knife. Uh, there, there it is folded up. And you can make them look pretty. I've even, uh, I've even used like perma blue on the steel and stained the handles. I bartered a couple one time out of barter blanket that I made them look a little bit prettier. But the big thing is they fold up, they fit in a pocket, you don't lose them, and they always work. And this is why you want a blade that cuts with a saw versus a chopping blade. They do it with rice because when you're harvesting rice, if you're chopping, you're knocking grain off and you're wasting grain. 
you want to do it here, though, for a different reason. You're out in your garden, and you put that thing down there, and you're cutting out some weeds or something like that. If you chop and you miss and you hit your finger, guess what? Yeah, it hurts. goes right in. Now you cut down on the bone. And then you're constantly having to resharp. Using a saw-like blade and a saw-like motion, I hope that if you feel yourself laying up against your skin before you pull, you'll stop. You're kind of aware that that's, that that's about to happen. The other thing is people said, why not just pull the weeds, et cetera? It depends. So you've got this beautiful pepper plant or eggplant, and you've got grass growing up right out, and the, the roots are now entwined with each other, and you pull it out, you pull the plant out. But if you just keep cutting it back and chopping and dropping, you're building your fertility, and that's what makes it so powerful. So the big thing with these, you see that it says right there on the screen up at the top, It says, dun, 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 why can't I do this today? Special notice, I'm bringing these around again today because they're back in stock. For how long, I don't know, but almost every time they come around, I run this item and it sells out in a few days. There's only one source of this item I'm aware of in the U.S., and it is simply an exceptional tool for homesteading, gardening, etc. If you want one, given they are only made in Turkey and the supply chain issues, I'd do it now. And I don't say that just so you'll buy one through my link. That's happened over and over. It comes around. I get an alert that they're in stock. I put them out, and in a couple days, they're gone. It's not because they're that popular. It's because there's only one importer, and while the TSP effect and the TSPAS effect is real, it's not huge. So, you know, if these guys sell 100 of them in the next couple days, if they were stocking thousands of them, it maybe it wouldn't be worth it to do. Uh, but this is actually a grape harvesting and pruning knife is what they're used for in Turkey and have been in the Middle East. The design is hundreds of years old. I'm sh- they're about 20 bucks. I'm sure if you were, you know, on a street in Turkey and that you had a, like a, a bazaar or something, they would probably cost like five bucks or something like that over there. But there's just really nothing like it. And remember, you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. W says a sharp pair of scissors works great. Try this and you'll understand the difference. Try this. When you grab a, 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 a clump, you can barely get your hand around of grass that's growing in, in one of your beds. And you take this and you go zip and it goes through it like butter. When it's thicker, heavier stuff or when it's thinner stuff that you hit with scissors and they just kind of like fold over. This works better. I've, <laughs> I've, I've used everything you can think of. And this will, in fact, prune small limbs and stuff like that as well. With that. Hope you guys enjoy it. Shop at T-SPAS. Help support the show. And remember, this show sounds great anywhere you listen to it. But if you're listening to the audio, it sounds best on Fountain.fm. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house. The American way Dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
revolution